You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What's the show about? It's about nothing. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It was something no one could figure out. When the votes were counted and the 1990 midterm House and Senate elections in the United States were over, what did the results mean? To quote Winston Churchill, we had a pudding without a theme, said Arizona Governor Bruce Babbitt. In some states, Republicans won. In other states, Democrats won. Everyone said, they hated incumbents and wanted to throw the bums out. That's what they told pollsters and reporters. Yet 96% of Congress was returned to the seat that they were in before the election. And it's about nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> so you're saying, I go into NBC and tell them I got this idea for a show about nothing. Politico would later, in an article later, retrospective, call it the Seinfeld election. Seinfeld had just aired at the time of this election. No clear party won an election night. Oh, forget the story. You gotta have a story. Who says you gotta have a story? Over 60% of the people disliked Congress, but over 60% also liked their representative. Any new tax was voted down in 1990, but so were some of the tax freeze and slash proposals. Time said, where, after the rumbling of autumn, was the wrath of constituents in November who were thought to be savoring the chance to throw the bums out. Well, for some, they showed their wrath by not voting at all. Turnout was 36.4%, the lowest since 1942, nearly tied with another kind of dull midterm of 1986. Mario Cuomo, governor of New York, said, I don't know what the mood is. How would you know? Are they despairing? Egocentric? Ignorant? Cuomo asked. I don't know. You can't poll people who don't vote. Well, Cuomo wasn't totally right. You can indeed poll people who don't vote. You can ask them. And he got more information than he let on. In fact, he got a bit of a scare in 1990, but he lucked out. He faced two opponents, a Republican, Pierre Renfrey, and a conservative party opponent. But his vote share dropped 12 points from Cuomo's last election. And across the Hudson River, Democratic Senator Bill Bradley faced a surprising challenge from a nobody, Christine Todd Whitman. Taxes had gone up in the state as a result of an increase in the state income tax proposed by then-Governor Jim Florio. Bradley kept saying it was a state issue. He was a United States senator. Voters didn't really care. But in Minnesota, Rudy Boschwitz lost to Senator Paul Wellstone, a professor given no chance at all, who went around campaigning from the back of a bus because he had no budget. And in Georgia, 
Newt Gingrich was nearly unseated by an opponent similarly unfinanced. Independents won in Connecticut for governor and in Alaska for governor. And in Vermont, the mayor of Burlington, a socialist, won the statewide House seat. His name was Bernie Sanders. He ran as an independent, but said he caucused with the Democrats. In North Carolina, Jesse Helms preserved his seat in the Senate against a challenge from Charlotte Mayor Harvey Gant. Gant was African-American. His city was the fastest-growing area of the state. Would new voters unseat this old segregationist stalwart? Helms had an idea. He ran an infamous white hands ad. It showed the hands, white-skinned, crumpling up a letter of rejection for a job. And the voice said, you needed that job, but they gave it to a minority because of racial quotas. This was America in 1990. Just off the tail end of the decade of the 80s, Reagan no longer president, George H.W. Bush is president. Bill Clinton was just another governor. In fact, in 1990, he was trying to get reelected and having a tough go of it. He'd have to beat back two opponents, one Democrat and one Republican. I would have a tough time in both the primary and general election. You wouldn't think at this point, and outside of a few people that knew him, there wasn't a lot of talk that this guy was going to be president in a few years. First Democrat Tom McRae, coming from a long family of Arkansas politicians, someone who had been a Clinton supporter, now turned against him and ran in the Democratic primary with labor and teacher support. Clinton, at this point, wasn't popular with them. And Clinton, it's hard to see because he seemed so young at the time, but he had been perceived as being in office too long in Arkansas. Governor for life is what McRae attacked him about. But McRae may have made one key mistake. He holds a press conference in Little Rock while Clinton is in Washington, running for president, McRae said. When who appears at the press conference? The first lady of Arkansas, Hillary Clinton telling Tom McRae, how dare you attack my husband while he's away? What kind of man are you? And citing all of the times when McRae had praised Clinton, and now he was running against him. Clinton would win that Democratic primary, but typical of the 1990 season, the GOP in Arkansas were also like split up and fighting too, beating each other up on ethics charges between the two candidates for governor. And then in the lieutenant governor's race in the GOP, a candidate from the American Nazi party was in the primary and not doing all that badly against the regular establishment Republican candidate. They'd have to fight it out. Once they did, and that candidate was beaten and Sheffield Nelson ran against Clinton, he brought up a new issue against him. White water and the investments made in that project. Nelson didn't win the election in 1990. Clinton would get the governorship again, but it'd be a bit closer than his previous. In Minnesota's governor race, the GOP gubernatorial candidate has to quit nine days before the election. Photos had surfaced of him having, in the past, but of adult age, gone skinny dipping with teenage girls. Just nine days before the election, Arne Carlson, no relation to me, Arne Carlson enters the race now as the GOP candidate, and as one newspaper said, he won. Nobody was yet tired of him. 
This back and forth election, hard to read, might actually though speak volumes about some of the things going on with midterms. And isn't that what's so central today in 2022 is we look at whether President Biden is going to have one of these traditional midterms, you know, where your party loses big in the House of Representatives and most of the time in the Senate too, sometimes not. We'll talk about that. Or is he going to have what we might call like a state of election, an unusual election, where that result doesn't happen? I mean, 1990 doesn't answer it alone, but it has some clues along with the history we'll talk about a bit. In 1990, George H.W. Bush was in the White House and losses in the midterm elections, the, the ones that the party, you know, in power usually loses uh, if I go back to 100 years since the last one, so 1918, the average is 31 House seats. And at the time that George H.W. Bush was in the White House, it was 27 House seats, so uh, r- roughly the same. If you're losing less than that, you could call that a decent result. Well, Bush's party only lost eight seats. The GOP only lost eight seats and lost net one governorship, and net one Senate seat. It wasn't the win that they coveted. Bush, just like Nixon, 20 years before, a GOP in the White House, this idea of this midterm trend, which you hear a lot of talk about more, because political science, I think, a little creeps into the through the pollsters and the Nate Silver types into the, the media and social media now. There was some discussion of these trends, but it wasn't universal. So I think presidents, particularly Nixon going into 1970 and Bush going into 1990, didn't want to hear about usually who's ever in power, you lose seats. That's just some kind of superstition, right? They wanted to take advantage and win seats for their party. Neither president would get that. But Bush's party only lost eight seats and lost one Senate seat. But in 1990, the GOP was still out of the congressional majority for 40 years, so you don't see a lot of celebrating. Bush wanted to at least set a course to get it back, and it doesn't happen. But even if he didn't, something happened. He got a murky stave. He staved off the normal, incredible, really, historical trend that a president's party loses massively in a midterm, most of the time. A midterm, need we explain it, is the congressional House and Senate elections that occur in between the presidential elections. There were a couple things going on in 1990. Not just Seinfeld. Bush was just in the beginning of facing down Saddam Hussein, who had invaded his neighbor, oil-rich Kuwait. It didn't hadn't turned into war yet, but it was possibly getting there. There could have been a little rally around the flag. And he had, at the risk of breaking his pledge not to raise taxes worked out with Democrats a complicated omnibus reconciliation bill, which raised some taxes, some fees. The trouble is, Bush had committed in 1988 at the New Orleans Superdome in his convention speech accepting his party's nomination, read my lips, no new taxes, and then, in effect, broke this pledge. For this, he earned the wrath of his own party. Newt Gingrich hung up on the White House when he was told, after the president had already made the decision. Trent Lott, now a whip in Congress, actually criticizes the decision publicly, and the White House criticizes him. 
Bush would hurt his chances for re-election in 1992 doing this. Clinton, who's going to run against him, is not going to make a pledge, but he's going to actually attack Bush for having made a pledge at all. And it'll appear in an empty Superdome in order to do it. The real shame is he shouldn't have made the pledge at all. But there's something Bush might have done. Well, it hurt him in 92. Might have helped his party in 1990. How? By joining Republicans and Democrats in a vote together to raise taxes. I mean, Bush didn't pass it with GOP votes alone. There weren't enough in Congress. He had to work with Speaker Tom Foley and others in the Democratic Party in order to raise that taxes, ostensibly to improve the deficit. It muddied the waters enough to get a perhaps a less damaging midterm. Of course, few were saying this in November 1990. They were looking at it at this meta level. The coverage was more, those pesky voters, what are they thinking? How will we know? And it was kind of similar in 1978, in that midterm. This would be Jimmy Carter's first midterm. And Hamilton Jordan, who was Carter's right-hand man, was getting fresh with reporters. He slammed a door so hard that it rattled TV cameras. And the press noticed this was right after he was getting results from the Democratic Party chairman. And Jerry Rafshoon, who usually would talk to the press on and on and on, had nothing to say in the night of the election. But as some results came in, Carter said later, a few days later, we did fairly well on a nationwide basis. We lost some key races. Bill Brock, the GOP chairman in 1978, couldn't fully celebrate that election either. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism. All while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right? is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep, about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The GOP had won only 15 House seats. Now, as I told you, the average is now 31 for a president in power. That's what you should lose. GOP only got 15 seats. Doesn't change Congress that much at all. And a reporter asks him, if instead of a two-party system, the country really had a party and a half. That's how dominant the Democrats were in Congress. Brock doesn't reject the premise. He says, well, we got a party and three quarters and spun to where they could be proudest about the election gains they did get. This is the election where two newbies are elected, Newt Gingrich, but also Al Gore, a big supporter of anti-apartheid issue early on. And pro-choice, Dick Clark of Iowa, would be defeated. He's a Democrat from Iowa. Anti-abortion activists played a big role, and it's one of the most notable first elections in 78 where this group plays a role at the tail end of the election. Clark thinks it was a factor. Carter's team took Clark's defeat hard because he was an ally within the Senate. But some right-wingers lost. Meldrum Thomas, a Republican running in New Hampshire, lost the governor's race. GOP lost Senate races in Massachusetts, in Michigan, in Nebraska, in New Jersey, and in Oklahoma. In New Jersey, they run Jeff Bell. And they're pretty excited about this candidate until basketball player Princeton grad Bill Bradley runs in the election. So while the GOP is winning in Minnesota, South Dakota, Minnesota, also in Maine, Iowa, Colorado, they win just a total of three seats offset by the seats that they lost. A Republican in Illinois, Charles Percy, hangs on to his seat with a television ad where he apologizes to voters for not getting it. There's a lot of spending in the 1978 midterm. It's significant for that. There's also a lot of unique tricks like Percy's ad looking into a camera and just saying, I'm sorry, I spent too much. In Massachusetts, Paul Songus ends his campaign by getting... A hundred staffers and running in red shorts to the state house in Boston, and he runs the last two miles of the campaign jogging. Nice television image. In Oregon, there's a candidate who travels forty thousand miles, going door to door to beat his Democratic opponent, and he does. He unseats the governor of Oregon doing that. And it's in Maine where a Republican, Bill Cohen is challenged so much there. His Democratic opponent is saying, he's just a media guy. He's all show. He doesn't have any substance. He's so tired of these attacks that he films himself, puts his face forward, and has mud thrown at his own face to beat his Democratic opponent. But 1978 and 1990, you could consider them Midterms where the president staved off the usual 31 House seat lost and didn't do badly in the Senate either. But they're not the most impressive elections. There are a few, and just a few, very rare, where the president's party in the White House actually gained seats in Congress during the election. If we go back to 1918, this has only happened three times. 1934, okay, Franklin Roosevelt in the White House, first midterm in the thick of the Depression. The best explanation is that Depression is still fresh in the mind of the voters. 
voters aren't done punishing the previous party. He doesn't gain a lot of seats, but he gains nine more House seats after he had gained over 70 in the last election. You also have 1998, where Speaker Gingrich and the Republican Party decided to impeach Bill Clinton. It was not a popular move. And voters, as near as we can tell, decide to punish the Republican Party by actually giving the Democrats five more seats in the House. Does it mean anything? Not really. Doesn't change the composition of the House. Republicans are still in control. Clinton can't do anything more than take a victory lap. And in the Senate, there's no gain or loss. It's a zero. Still, given the normal trend in a midterm election, you can consider that a stave. In 2002, 9-11, run up to the Iraq war. Patriot Act is on the table. The president, George W. Bush, is putting that issue to Democrats, really making it a matter of patriotism in these races. Republicans actually gain seats. Uh, The gain is, I have it all here. I've been calculating all this stuff. Eight seats in the House and two seats in the Senate. That is a gain. Let's put that in perspective. From Wilson to Trump, there's only three times the President's Party gained seats in the House. And there's only seven times where we had what we consider a stave. That would be a significantly lower than average loss in the midterm seats. And also, the loss wasn't matched by a loss in the Senate, and the loss wasn't significant um, to change the dynamics of power. The goal of every American president is to get to 1998, what Clinton pulled off, what George W. Bush pulled off in 2002. And there, I think, you have a little bit more science, you have a little bit more of a campaign, but you also had, not unlike the other one, 1934, a national emergency in that atmosphere of 9-11 that would be hard to replicate. Now, there's two others to speak of that we haven't addressed because we talked briefly about 1970 where Nixon only loses where Nixon only loses 12 seats in the House. In 1970, the spin won. I think Nixon really wanted a gain. He was a Republican coming in, taking over after the Democrats had, you know, supposedly destroyed everything in the 60s, the 1968 Chicago Convention and all of that, Vietnam. And he's only, he's actually, his party's losing 12 seats. The Democrats are gaining more. So it was definitely seen as something like, okay, we got a chance of beating Nixon in 72. And Nixon wasn't happy. So there's two others to speak of. One is 1926. Calvin Coolidge is president. GOP has the House. Democrats gain 11 seats. It's not enough to change anything. Um, As we talked about, the average is 31, so it's well below that average. They gain eight Senate seats, but the GOP still controls the Senate with Vice President Dawes' tiebreaker vote. Something different happens. And there's not even a lot of talk about the election, really, in 1926, but something different does happen. Unlike Carter or Bush, Coolidge calls this out. Only the House election, he said, is a national election. The Senate, well, a third of them are up, only a third. So it's not really a national election. That's what he tells reporters. We held the House. We still hold the Senate. And we won what was the only national contest. It really was a victory, Coolidge says. 
And that going back to 1926 is a pretty rare opinion, but an interesting piece of analysis from a former president. Because it's not the way that Bush looked at it. It's not the way that Nixon looked at it. It's only halfway the way that Carter looked at it. Then you have the example of 1962. That could provide some insights. It's John F. Kennedy's midterm. But 1962 is very different uh, because it's in October 62. And the election is happening the same time as the Cuban Missile Crisis. And people are voting for Congress at the same time. So it's a rare midterm where there's a major event, I mean, possibly world-destroying event going on. How do you define, like, what could be comparable to 62? I don't know. If the Ukraine invasion happened not in April or May, but in October, right as the election's going on, maybe But again, how close are we actually involved in Ukraine? You know, we are supporting, but we're not directly involved. So it's hard to say what would match something like the Cuban Missile Crisis that would make this effective. But here's what happens in 62. They're aware of this. Paul, pollster Lou Harris, very tight with Kennedy, tells Kennedy, use this issue. Say that the GOP would be shooting craps with the destiny of this nation, playing politics with national security by running an election during this crisis. And the GOP picked up on it, too. Norris Cotton of New Hampshire, a senator, said, I told you the president would move on Cuba before the election. I warned you. And he says this a week after Kennedy announced a quarantine against Soviet missiles in Cuba. Barry Goldwater says that Kennedy administration was playing politics with foreign policy. And Thomas B. Curtis, a representative from Mississippi, went as far as to tell his voters that the Cuban Missile Crisis was phony and contrived for election purposes. We know more about that Cuban Missile history and than the newspapers probably did at that time. We know that Kennedy didn't tell the Soviets to go in and try to install missiles in Cuba, that there was a real crisis and a real danger of war only narrowly avoided by this quarantine plan. Had Kennedy engaged in anything like that, he would deserve the shame in history, I would say. There's no evidence of that. It's just simply an event that happened to occur during the time of a midterm. How often can that happen? So what does it really say? Uh, There's also another issue in Mississippi, civil rights crisis. And Gallup says that about three to one voters approved his handling of it. So, you know, it does provide this little bit of evidence. If you want to be a president whose party wins seats in the House, the Senate during a midterm, do something. It's not that easy, but it's what you have to do. Either a foreign policy win or domestic policy win. When I say a win, I don't just mean your own party celebrating. I mean broadly interpreted as, oh, the president did a good job on that. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Easy to say, right? That's why these things are rare, but it does appear that actions matter.
we're more focused on the House seats in all of this because usually the president's party loses seats in the House. It's the most represent every two years, most representative, tightest districts, smallest districts, um, representative of, of opinion as you can get in the federal system. As Coolidge said, the Senate's only elected one-third of them every year. How can it be considered a national? I think it can a little bit. Coolidge's observation is actually mathematically pretty on point. Let's talk a bit about the dynamics between the House and the Senate. So you almost always lose House seats in an election. The Senate does not exactly follow that pattern, but it generally does. What's the best way to say it? In 75% of cases, the direction that the House seats go is the direction the Senate seats go. So if the president's losing, like Obama was in 2010 and 2014, you're also losing seats in the Senate. But there's about 25% of cases where the Senate does, goes in the opposite direction. It's a, it's anchored a bit. I like to think of it as kind of a um, boat attached to a tugboat with a chain, where there's a bit of a swing that's possible. But you're still going generally in the same direction. Uh, for instance, in 2018, Republicans gained two seats while the Democrats are taking over the House. Yeah, Nixon actually gains seats in the Senate in 1970, but nobody cares that much because the control is still pretty far and it's Democrats have control. They, they clip them a little bit, but not much. So that happens, does not happen again. What happened in 1970 does not happen again until 2018. Usually you're tied. Usually you're tied together. So what does that tell us? You know, there's a lot of talk right now like, hey, maybe Democrats will lose the House but gain in the Senate. And I think at least what the history of the elections past hundred years tells us is that you probably don't want to put too much on that. You want to actually be doing well. If you're going to lose in the House, you want to keep it to a minimal amount of seats because the Senate trend is going to tend to follow that. If something bad's happening there, something bad's happening in the Senate races. Okay, that's what I think about the House race. Now, you have a situation like in 2010 where President Obama has a pretty rough go of it in the House elections, losing 63 seats in the House, which is going to change the House from Democrat Democratic to Republican, okay? There's some solace in that Democrats hang on to the Senate. But you have to remember, they had a 60 vote, 60 votes in the Senate, 60 Democratic senators. So they lose six in that election. But that loss of six was not as bad as what many people have predicted. And most of the analysis goes to you had these kind of nutty, um, Tea Party candidates, particularly in Delaware and in Nevada, that changed the direction of the Senate. And so that uh, President Obama was able to keep control. It's pretty important for a president to hold on to the Senate. The Senate is a more important body. Appointments um, can block legislation uh, from the House. Justices of the Supreme Court, we know that part. So that's what I want to talk about with Steve midterms. I mean, I think the thing to talk to really think about is that they're pretty rare. Uh, you're talking about about a fourth of the time. The president does either not that badly or 
actually gain seats for his party in those three. They're rare. So I think it's worthy of discussions. And I think everyone who supports the person that's in the White House currently hopes for a state election. So in 2018, I had a podcast called Midterms Don't Always Come Out Badly for the President, but they usually do. And nothing's really changed in my opinion about that. It takes some extraordinary circumstances, which a president may or may not be able to even control, that really have to happen to kind of cause a stave or even one of these quasi-stave type, you know, Seinfeld elections. It's pretty clear you have to take some actions. Even Bush's limited actions in the omnibus reconciliation bill of 1990 and then what was going on with the run-up to the Gulf War, you know, are present and need to be accounted for in any analysis. Here you have some things going on. You have some politics. You certainly have the Roe decision, which could bring partisans out. Um, One of the main theories, because no one really knows why this midterm thing happens. They still don't really know. There's been a lot of studies. One of them is that partisans get kind of disappointed after their, their guys in the White House. Now what do you do? Right? They don't want to come out in as great numbers. And they're never, they hoped for all of these things. If you look at a presidential campaign, there's really large turnout and there's a lot of promises being made. And presidents never finish all of those promises that they make. So you're going to have disappointed partisans. That's one of the key theories. If that's the case, the counter to that is coming up with some other reason for people on the side of the president's party to come out. And what is it? Well, you have this recent Supreme Court decisions that could happen. Now, we don't have a real foreign policy crisis, but there is a lot going on with Russia and Ukraine. I put that in the background. Um, So these are all things. Look, I mean, here we are. I'm recording this in beginning of July. Midterms are not until November, and the campaigning for them really doesn't matter until October when all of those TV ads and social media ads start and people start thinking about races for Congress. There's a lot that can go on in between then. You're seeing the potential for like some ambitious student loan program, but some of that is already baked in the cake because it's already been proposed and, and attacked back and forth. Such a tight Democratic majority over the House that it's almost in any, even in a stave midterm, it's possible. Even in a well below average midterm, you know, Democrats could lose the House. So you really then look at the Senate. Thanks for listening. Remember, hey, give us some support. And if you if you really like the program, please tell someone about it. That really helps us. Okay, thanks.